Before we jump into the program today, we just wanted to let you know that for our Patreon supporters, we have bonus content. That's right. You can go behind the scenes at the 2016 BSI Chautauqua Conference, where we had a chance to screen some Eileen Norwood films, as well as the William Gillette film. We were in the theater there, and we have still shots, as well as a couple of video clips with piano accompaniment. And you can see this content for as little as a dollar a month. All you have to do is become a Patreon supporter of I Hear of Sherlock everywhere. Just go to patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock or press that Patreon button on our website. Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I hear Sherlock everywhere. Episode 223, Eileen Norwood Restored. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello and welcome or welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, do you hear that? No, I don't. Oh, yes, I do. It's a silent film. Yes, exactly right. And that's <laughs> why we are going to be talking with Russell Merritt today about some developments in the world of silent film and Sherlock Holmes. Before we do that, just want to remind you that the show notes for this episode are available at ihose.co slash ihose223, all lowercase. And that'll take you directly to our website where you can leave comments, where you can check on links. And there will be links, uh, even though these are silent films. Because, gosh, this is an audio program. We can't expect you to learn everything there is just by listening to us. You need to go and explore some of these wonderful links as well. Of course, you can support our program here for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, our link out to Patreon works right there, and that will put you on our roll of supporters. So thank you very much in advance. We are pleased to welcome back Professor Russell Merritt, who has taught at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of Film and Media for more than 30 years before retiring in 2019. Russell's focus was on art house cinema, international animation, D.W. Griffith, Sergei Eisenstein, and silent film. He's published three books on Walt Disney's early films, including Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies in 2006 and Walt in Wonderland in 1993, Disney's Pinocchio. Uh, sorry, Disney's Pinocchio. He, uh, he produced and directed The Great Nickelodeon Show, which recreates the turn-of-the-century Nickelodeon programs, and that's played at the Telluride Film Festival historically. Russell's been awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Denver Silent Film Festival and received the Jean Mitri Award by Le Giornate del Cinema Muto, which is an international prize awarded annually to individuals distinguished for their contribution to the reclamation of silent cinema. 
Now, Russ is a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, where he is invested as the Trepoff murder, and he's been writing on Holmes and Conan Doyle for the BSJ and a variety of other publications since he was a teenager. He edited the 2016 Christmas Annual on William Gillette's film version of Sherlock Holmes and has been an essential part of a number of restoration projects in the film world of Sherlock Holmes. Russell Merritt, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Well, thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. Good to be here. Absolutely. Now, we, you were with us on episode 147, where we talked uh, more generally about the silent films of Sherlock Holmes. That was coming on the heels of the uh, discovery and restoration of the William Gillette film. You want, you want to talk just briefly about the importance of that film and, and why that uh, is uh, of note for Sherlockians? Well, sure. Uh in a way, I hope it doesn't require great uh, length to explain how important that was. That was considered a lost film until it was discovered in the bottom of a carton uh, at the uh, Cinémathèque Française. And here was finally a chance to see what the founders of the BSI, the uh, generations of Sherlockians, could never see a uh, example of Gillette's legendary performance. And when some eager beaver decided to hook it up with the recorded performance of uh, a scene from the play, you got to both hear and see Gillette. Uh, I would say not exactly in his prime. This film was made in 1916, but certainly a valuable um, landmark in just getting a sense of how the dramatizations of Sherlock Holmes um, were done at the top of the line. Yeah, I mean, this this really would have happened about halfway between when he first inhabited the role and right. when he did his farewell tour in 1930. In fact, this came at the heels of one of those farewell tours. <laughs> uh, like Sarah Bernhardt, he had lots of farewell tours. Um, but this one, yes, came just after they had lost the producer of the original Sherlock Holmes to The Sinking of the Life, uh, Lusitania. And so were desperate for finding a, a way of uh, bringing Gillette back onto the stage. And so they did this with uh, uh, a second Gillette play. And at the end of that tour, uh, they ended in Chicago. They uh, went to the SNA studio and made this film. Unhappily, uh, the luck of the gods sometimes works, sometimes don't. This was Chaplin's studio. And, uh, and of course, Chaplin was one of the early Billies. And, uh, but, they missed each other by a couple of months. So we don't have Chaplin versus Gillette. Well, that's okay. I mean, we'll, we'll settle yeah. for each of them separately, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, in, in the interim, since we talked to you last, uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the developments that you've seen in the world of silent Sherlock Holmes films. Well, of course, there was the discovery of Das Hund von Baskerville. This was the last Sherlock Holmes silent film. And this has a very rich, complicated uh, story, how the film was discovered and restored. And enough to say that it shows the incredible cooperation internationally among Sherlockians. This story will take you from Russia to France to Germany to Poland to Czechoslovakia, um, not to the United States because the film was never shown here, but it meant uh, finding, finding this uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a wonderfully roundabout way. And uh, it is in many ways a better film than the Gillette film in that it was produced at the height of the German expressionist and social realist movements. But, um, of course, without Gillette, it doesn't 
have that reverberation. I think I can summarize it by saying that when we discovered the Gillette film uh, from literally around the world, people were asking, when can we get there to see this at the Castro, uh, where it had its premiere? Uh, when Das Hund von Baskerville uh, was discovered, the universal question was, when's it coming out on DVD? <laughs> so, uh, but it's a remarkable film. And, uh, uh, and so that is maybe the most interesting of the historical discoveries. But there are things in the work, and it brings us to where we are now, which is this announcement that the BFI is at last going to be uh, releasing their long-held Eileen Norwood um, series of 45 uh, Sherlock Holmes films. And the equally exciting but also frustrating discovery that the Clive Brook version of Sherlock Holmes made in 1932 um, has been restored, but it's not exactly available and thereby hangs a tale. Um, so that is for me where the action is right now with those productions. So, uh, Russell, just for the sake of our listeners who, you know, might not be up on silent films, could, could you just, um, you know, talk for a, a moment really about two things? I mean, one is, um, uh, the German Hound of the Baskervilles. You know, one of the things that's extraordinary about that film is that it took place at a time when there was still experimentation and development going on, not only with lighting and photography, but also with the basic materials of film, you know, the sensitivity of film. And that let you do things like, um, you know, do extraordinary lighting effects um, that really are an important part of visual storytelling. But could yes, you talk? Could you talk just for a minute about about why silent films are important along those lines, and also about when the first Holmes uh, Holmes first appeared on the screen? Uh, I think Mary Pickford said it best. She said, "In a more rational world, talkie films would have come first, and then, as we became more and more sophisticated, we would move into silent films. It's a more difficult medium." It uh, challenges you much more. I can watch a commercial Hollywood film today, go out, get some popcorn, uh, come back, and I can pick up where I left off. Try to turn your head for 30 seconds from a first-rate silent comedy or drama, and you're lost. Everything is so compacted, so efficient, and part of that is learning those visual, uh, I don't want to say tricks or mannerisms, there are more than that, stylistics that make this such an efficient role. The way music was incorporated um, became another tool that gets lost when you have competing sound sources. Uh, where the sound is entirely coming from music and from the orchestrations. And, uh, pardon me, <coughs> the, um, this uh, Clive Brook 1932 film made at the Fox studio, the most inventive of all the uh, Hollywood studios at the turn of the 20s into the 30s. Um, that is a case study. You had this brilliant cinematographer, uh, George Barnes, uh, your viewers might know him as the man who filmed so many Cecil B. DeMille films. Those who are interested in film history know him as the man who films these Busby Berkeley musicals. Um, I know him because he makes these wonderful fantasy films, Thief of Baghdad and uh, 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 Son of Sinbad. Uh, he is the man who creates the, the uh, lighting schemes. If you ever go to that Pirates of the Caribbean ride on... Um, in Disneyland, this is the man who worked out how you make that creepy and scary and exciting. That's George Barnes. He's the cinematographer here. And uh, William K. Howard, who rivals Murnau and uh, Borzaghi and John Ford as one of the leading of the Fox directors, uh, is directing this film. So you have these two masters who are having the times of their lives working with 
all these devices and techniques with a murder mystery. And so, oh, uh, what we call Cherish Girl lighting, uh, flash uh, cutting, uh, uh, highly original compositions. That's all grist for the mill. It's part of what makes this film so exciting. But what is of special interest, I think, to Sherlockians is that our lead actor uh, is a kind of halfway house between Gillette and Basil Rathbone. And that if you want to see where Rathbone is coming or where Gillette is going, this is your guy, uh, uh, this remarkable British actor, Clive Brook. Now, ordinarily, Clive Brook is the groom on the wedding cake, a really dull uh, pretty boy. Uh, and that's the way Joseph von Sternberg, who makes these famous Marlene Dietrich films, plays him. Not here. He is exciting. He is funny. He is got a sense of humor. And um, so the witty Sherlock Holmes that, uh, you know, it gets part of the personality. Um, that is where you, you find the dialogue coming into play. But the more important, I think, is, remember, if, if you've seen the Gillette film or read about Gillette's performances, uh, this is the elegant aristocrat who uh, hangs out his spats, is just uh, very low-key. And then you compare that with the Rathbone, high-key, uh, excited, uh, the kind of father of all those subsequent Sherlockians who uh, love to uh, make you think that, that that drug addiction is real and they're, they're, they're super hyper. This, too, is a kind of, uh, the Clydebrook is a kind of bridge between those two where he combines the uh, blasé sophistication of Gillette but is also finding the edgy qualities of uh, Rathbone. So, as you can tell, that's a, a wonderfully exciting uh, discovery. But that is the Fox 1932 version. These well, while, we're, yeah, yeah, while, we're, while we're on that, why don't you tell us the end, the end of that story? What is the current state of uh, oh, the Fox? Bert, I'm so glad you asked. Because it is a masterpiece of frustration right now. That is, that film has been fully restored. Uh, a beautiful restoration created by the Fox studio itself. Between the restoration and the present day, the Fox company was bought by the Walt Disney studio. And the first thing they did was to eliminate their archival program. And the second thing they did was to uh, deep six the Fox library in favor of Disney product. So those are the uh, things we have to uh, confront. And happily, there has been movement to try to put the Brooks film out on DVD or have it streamed uh, on one of the platforms that Disney partners with. All kinds of projects. And the the key to that is Les Klinger. I shared all this information with Les. And he, as you'd expect from Les Klinger, uh, is golfing buddies with the uh, head lawyer at Disney, who is also on their board of directors. Through him, we've been um, uh, getting to the head of Disney uh, restorations and seeing whether he can be persuaded to include this in the various options that Disney has when distributing its own product on uh, television and through streaming and the rest. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that something will happen to the uh, with this and that uh, – You'll be among the first to know. Excellent. Well, hey, if we need to start a petition to uh, help yeah. in this effort, we certainly I, will. Well, if you were the Arnold Schwarzenegger or the Star Wars uh, fan club, uh, that would have some weight. Yeah. Uh, that uh, The trouble is that Disney remembers 
uh, Sherlock Holmes from the Great Mouse Detective. And so that doesn't have quite the box office appeal that uh, more recent uh, productions have. Understandable, understandable. So um, just just to ground ourselves to this 1932 film, um, this was Clive Brooks' second outing as Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And interestingly, his first was, was called The Return of Sherlock Holmes, and his second film was then just Sherlock Holmes, seemingly have, uh, having been done in reverse order there. Um, and this was, uh, the first film was in 1929, the, and I believe that was the first Sherlock Holmes film that had sound, um, although it was also prepared to run in theaters that did not have sound equipment. So it was kind of a, a, a hybrid approach. And in the ensuing years, Arthur Wantner, in 1931, uh, began inhabiting the role of Sherlock Holmes as well. And for me, from my eye, you look at Clive Brook um, as a, almost as a throwback to William Gillette, um, who himself was an inspiration for Frederick Dorr Steele's drawings. And then you look at Wantner, who is almost stripped from the pages of the Strand magazine of Sidney Paget's version of Sherlock Holmes. So what a treat in the late 20s, early 30s for moviegoers around the world to, to be able to see Sherlock Holmes in moving pictures in every uh, uh, version imaginable to uh, illustrators. Further, uh, to just build on your point, it was not just a case of a bunch of Sherlock Holmes films now suddenly becoming uh, available, but you had the whole range of production value. The Wantner films, like that Raymond Massey speckled band, is what we called a British uh, uh, quickie quota. This was a uh, low-budget series that was meant to fill uh, legal contracts that would enable the Brits to bring in American production, that theaters were legally obliged to now support British productions. And both the Wantner and the, uh, uh, the Raymond Massey are examples of that, whereas the uh, Clive Brook is a kind of high-end production from the... Uh, from the Hollywood studios, as was the Hound of the Baskervilles from the high-end German production. That is a more complicated story. You, uh, that uh, When I say high-end, it's because uh, they're suffering from an inflation, labor is cheap, and they can get the best of their, uh, uh, their, their workers, their crew, uh, to work on what was essentially a low-budget production. Uh, but, but as I say, you have the whole gamut from how you do homes on a budget to how you do homes on a, uh, on a lavish scale. And uh, that is just so much fun to compare. So you're not only going forwards and backwards, you're going side by side. So we will step back uh, about a decade or so right after we come back from this quick break. You know, there's never a lack of things to talk about when it comes to our friends at MX Publishing. It is 2021, and they continue to crank out some amazing titles. Most recently, we have uh, The Magnificent Madness of Tessa Wiggins. It's the third book to feature Sherlock Holmes's protege. You can find out how she follows in his footsteps. There's Hounded, my lifelong obsession with Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles. You know, under this pandemic, we've all had to make our own way and find our own hobbies. And Vince Staden consumed every version of the Hound he could lay his hands on, even the bad ones. And this is his story. And, of course, there's Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Amazonian Explorer. This is an original adventure featuring Sherlock Holmes and... It's a theater production with Jonathan Goodwin playing Holmes in the style of Jeremy Brett. This is the first time that our friends at MX Publishing have had a campaign to support Sherlockian theater. All three of these are available via Kickstarter, and we have the links to each one of them in the show notes. Check them out at ihose.co slash ihose222 or through mxpublishing.com. 
Russell, we've talked about homes in the 20s and 30s. Take us back to the early days of silent films and lead us up to Isla Norwood, uh, Ellie Norwood. Um, you know, when did first, when was the very first Holmes appearance on, on a movie screen? Oh, before there were movies, there was Sherlock Holmes on a movie screen. Uh, it wasn't uh, projected onto a uh, screen. It was uh, seen at the bottom of what was called a kinetoscope, where you stuck your head into a gadget and cranked it, and there was Sherlock Holmes uh, in a parody. Now, that happens, what, I think, not, oh, boy. Uh, 1901, I, I think. I'm sorry, Scott. Well, 1901, I think. You're talking yeah, about, that sounds Sherlock about right. Holmes Baffled. Is that the one? Yes, yeah. that's the one. And uh, so we don't know anything about the actor. We don't know much about the production. Uh, but we do know that it has a very witty uh, series of playoffs from the Gillette film. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's the first. Um, but it has been in a way misunderstood uh, in a couple of ways. First, it looked gorgeous when it came out. Now you see it and you're wondering what kind of uh, cocaine I'm on because it looks so terrible. Uh, but that's because it has been duped, 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 duped by the Biograph production company itself as they are trying to market it as a uh, uh a silent film uh, later in its career. But in its original, it uh, was quite handsome because it was shot in what today we would call um, 70 millimeter and uh, with these cards. But those cards have been lost. Well, anyway, enough about that one. Uh, the uh, uh, big noise comes in 1905 when the Vitagraph Company creates its uh, Sherlock Holmes films as part of a crime series and this has been another one of those greatly misunderstood productions. Sometimes it's attributed to uh, Bronco Billy Anderson. There was no Bronco Billy Anderson in 1905. There was William Anderson, a director who had been an actor for Edison and other companies. But Bronco Billy, the cowboy, wouldn't be created by Anderson until he joins another company several years later. Furthermore, it's been suggested that he acts in the film. There's no evidence that he acted in the film. Um, so we don't know who is the Sherlock Holmes, and we don't know uh, uh, much about that production because the studio system, and I'm now not talking about the Hollywood studio system, but the Nickelodeon system is still in the process of being formed. And so all the things that we take for, for granted that there was a, uh, a production company, that there were a stable of actors, that there was a crew, a steady crew. That's all being worked out. And this film is a great example of a kind of organized chaos uh, that comes about in that uh, it's still shot in New York City, uh, but tries to create the impression that it's being filmed elsewhere. The actors are moving furniture, are nailing boards to uh, the walls. They, uh, the set designer can come on as a uh, bit part. And so it's all, and the genre that it belongs to is not a Sherlock Holmes genre. Um, it's a Raffles genre. That he is, uh, and part of that is copyright issue. Part of that is just simply the popularity of crime and criminal uh, activity. But it, it's a lost film. All we have are these frame enlargements that were sent to uh, Washington for copyright purposes. That is probably more than you ever wanted to know about these productions, but they do lead to more substantial productions. And they're coming from France and mostly from England and from, of course, the United States as well. The importance of the Eileen Norwood series, of course, not the first, is that this is the one that was given substantial production value by the Stoll Company, which was one of the leading production companies of the 20s. 
and that it nabbed Eileen Norwood as its Sherlock Holmes. He made 45 of these short films altogether. They were what we call two reelers, so they go from about 15 to 30 minutes apiece. And they are, especially in the first set, models of how you create a compact, intelligible, uh, exciting adaptation of a story that was meant to be read, not to be seen. Uh, how do you handle Holmes's wizardry as, uh, a de- as a deducing detective, a mental giant on the screen? Norwood finds the ways. Uh, he and Conan Doyle so appreciates him. As you may know, that uh, Conan Doyle was ready, as ever, to abandon Sherlock Holmes. He was always abandoning Sherlock Holmes. But uh, what excited him uh, and inspires his creation of the stories that become anthologized as the case book are his discovery of what Eileen Norwood can do and what Stoll can do in furthering uh, the reputation of the detective. And uh, so Norwood uh, is is uh, Conan Doyle's favorite Sherlock Holmes. And in a way, that's sort of good enough for me. But it's a, a sign of how important he was in the establishment of the person, the screen personality of Sherlock Holmes, how you solve those problems of a intellectual mental giant uh, in a silent medium. Um, so, Russell... For uh, people that have been able to see Eileen Norwood, Sherlock Holmes films to date, um, how many have traditionally been available and in what format would people have seen them? Oh, Scott, you ask such a great question. Uh, that depends on where you are <laughs> and when you're there. That they, they were shown. Uh, let me back up a second. The, in the late 1990s, uh, the British Film Institute uh, created a restoration program. The Stoll Company, uh, that would be Oswald Stoll, donated his production uh, uh, files, uh, mostly importantly the Sherlock Holmes and the Dr. Fu Manchu series, uh, to the British Film Institute. Uh, nothing was done with them until the late 90s when the remarkable Elaine Burroughs uh, underwent a restoration of the first 15 of the films. They're the most important of the 45. They were directed by the best director and, you know, it was still fresh. And this is when Conan Doyle was interested. So uh, those were all restored. They came in all kinds of bits and pieces. A lot of them only survived in their German versions. So the German titles had to be translated into uh, English. The, uh, some of them were incomplete and they had to shop to find out where they could be restored. So that is for me, the, uh, the golden horde, those, uh, restored 15. They got almost no play. They were shown piecemeal at this festival, that festival. Um, one of the first times I saw the, uh, you know, two or three of these films, was at the Giornata di Cinemamuto, the Italian silent film festival at Pordenone. And that was what got me so excited. You could have seen them uh, piecemeal before then in these wretched prints that came to the United States when uh, that first series was being shown here. Uh, when uh, pirates would find this film or that film, they could dupe it. And so we have these hideous prints that uh, pirates uh, have distributed, and they are still available. But to find those pristine prints, they are rare. So the reason they're so rare is that 1999 is the great date. It was at that point that uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber bought the Stoll Empire, and he bought them for the theaters 
uh, he wanted to get out of the Robert Stigwood uh, prison that he was in uh, to be able to show his film, uh, his plays, his musicals uh, in his own theaters. And the Stoll theaters were going to be it. Somewhere in about a, it was about a 200-page contract. Way in the back of it, it was noticed that Stoll made movies. <laughs> and uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber had no interest in them, uh, didn't know what to do with them. So he spun them off to uh, some production company. Now the BFI runs scared. We may not have the rights to these films if this spinoff from the uh, really useful company, which was the Andrew Lloyd Webber company, uh, can claim rights. So why should we invest in restoring or distributing them if uh, they're going to be used by a private company? And in fact, we may even be sued. So everything comes to a dead stop. And suddenly the BFI becomes extremely cautious about when and where they can show them. As a side anecdote, I was able to show three of these films in the Chautauqua uh, conference that we had a couple of years ago. And uh, I think I'd rather be settling the Arab-Israeli war than having to negotiate with uh, Bob Katz uh, all the ins and outs of what it would take to send these BFI prints to a non-authorized film activity. Uh, but we did it. But we had to pay for the maybe rights. We don't know that they were rights, but the maybe rights, the possible rights that the spinoff from uh, the really useful company had. So we have not been sued. We have not been challenged. And all went well. But that just shows you what was involved in all of this. So the news that makes this all relevant is that the BFI has now partnered with a company called Iron Mountain to release and restore all 45. I am advising extreme caution about all this. I'm not sure that Iron Mountain has any idea what it's in for. Uh, but uh, we live in hope. So uh, uh, I can explain that, but I've been talking enough. Oh, no, not at all. So, um, so what, do you think the, what do you think the future uh, holds? I mean, uh, is, um, is the Weber company um, still um, uh, indeterminate about their thinking about this asset that they apparently accidentally uh, had? You're, Bert, you're going to be so sad you asked that question. <laughs> no, the really useful company is out of the picture now. It is the, the, the spinoff from the really useful company. Uh, it was called, I, it has several names, but it, the one I remember is the Peppermint uh, Company. Uh, Austin Shaw running it. Um, that... I think that possible dispute, and I might not even be a dispute, but uh, uncertainty has been resolved. Otherwise, the BFI would not oh, good. be involved with this. But also, for me, just between us, um, that uh, the good news is the BFI has changed management. Um, so there's a new there's a new voice. And we don't, it's too early to know exactly what that means. But without that, I think there would never have been this effort at trying to, uh, to cooperate with uh, this private company, uh, Iron Mountain. And, uh, but as I say, Iron Mountain is the new kid in town. And so I don't know if they know this history or know the complications of trying to restore these 45. There is no problem in restoring the first 15. And that's what you really want to focus on. That Those are, they've been restored. Whether they will use that restoration or want to start from scratch, that's up to them. It's the remaining 30 that uh, may be more of a challenge than they think. They think they can do this in a year. They cannot do this in a year <laughs> if they have a good 
if they're going to have a good result. Uh, it, it all depends on how much money they want to put into it and how much time they want to put into this. But for one thing, the BFI controls, or I should say has, has materials on less than half of the final 15. And so in order to do it right, you're going to have to start searching for other sources to combine. And that's what we did with Hound of the Baskervilles and with the Gillette. You find other um, sources. Uh, but that takes time, and you have to know what you're doing. And so um, that yeah. remains to be seen. Uh, so, I, I may be just overly cautious, yeah. but I've only seen the press release, and I've only been dealing with the BFI for 20 years. So um, <laughs> that has not been uh, a day at the beach. I think that based on what you're saying, I'm going to take it off my Christmas list this year. Hmm. Yeah, that's wise. Probably maybe wise, by maybe. the end of the decade, you'll have uh, a reason to celebrate. Yeah, you know, in the uh, in the press release, uh, again, uh, hope springs eternal, but they say work is being undertaken by experts at the BFI National Archive and is expected to be completed by 2023 to coincide with the centenary of the release of the final serial and feature adaptation of The Sign of Four in 1923. I wish them the best of luck. <laughs> well, uh, is, is there anything that interested civilians or Sherlockians can do to uh, help the process along, to ensure that uh, it gets uh, sped up, or even to find materials? Um. The frustrating answer is, I'm not sure that um, mainly if we enthusiasts have a whole lot of money that you want to give to the BFI for this project, uh, they will be very interested in that. Uh, that it is, like most museums and archives, in a precarious situation. It needs the cooperation of the industry itself. And there is no industrial incentive to promote this. Uh, so you're competing with projects that the BFI is interested in that do have a an aspect that is uh, useful to the current British ind film industry. That's what's going to take top priority. Uh, and in a way, my frustration, which I suspect you can sense, is that an archive and a library, and it's like, shouldn't be so driven by industrial needs. But the fact is, film is an extremely expensive medium. The... Uh, Technology is constantly evolving, so what was restored 20 years ago may have to be restored again. There are all kinds of complications that come with this fascinating technology. And um, so they have to play with partners that say if you're trying to collect an author, you don't have to deal with. And uh, so it's not a, such an easy uh, process, but uh, to my mind, the Library of Congress and the George Eastman House have struck the proper balance of uh, being a public institution in the case of the Library of Congress and uh, being able to work very well with uh, industrial uh, uh, contributors. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, this is the uh, the constant. Uh, struggle, uh, and I think it's probably happened. You would know uh, better than than we, Russ. Um, between the commercial aspect of yeah. filmmaking and the art, and and just the process and the love of the medium uh, that's been going on for over a century. Well, sure, it, but it comes back to your question as to what can we do as civilians trying to influence these decisions, and. You know, it is so tempting to be the cheerleader, to say, oh, yeah, just get a writing campaign going and uh, it will work. Uh, that has not been my experience, that it's sort of like students wanting to get a teacher who's been denied tenure uh, to get the tenure. They start a letter writing campaign to the deans and the chancellors. I've never seen that work. <laughs> 
So, uh, so anyway, what you, um, I'm not, Fair enough. Fair enough. But anyway, yeah, I'm struggling to be positive, and uh, I'm sure there are. So, 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 Russell. Other than the um, Eileen Norwood films, are there what are what it, what's on your short list of holy grail objects? You oh, know, lost yet to be found. Sure. What would brighten that, that your day? The, the, the ones that I'm excited about wouldn't necessarily be good films. It's just that they. I would just be so curious as to see what they were like. So, for example, there's a silent version of Studying Scarlet, which uh, is a lost film uh, made in the early 20s. And it was evidently shot with a British representation of the great alkali desert. And uh, we have these tantalizing stills. Uh, I would be interested in seeing that. Of course, I would love to see... But I think that has happened, those um, television films that came out of uh, the UK in the 60s. They would be fun. There is a very early Sherlock Holmes that was done, I believe it was in the late 30s, I think around 37, 38, uh, when television was not widely available. It was still something that uh, was for enthusiasts. And so there was this stage production uh, of uh, Sherlock Holmes that was televised uh, for a radio club. Uh, but it was done by, I believe, NB- what would become NBC. And uh, wouldn't that be fascinating just to see what was around there? But among the, but as I say, that's, this is all for, for specialists and fanatics. The um, mainstreams. How I, about how about Billy Wilder's Private Life? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Of course, it would be nice to see what that would have been, but I could see the reasons why they shortened it. I mean, I yeah, you've seen the um, excerpts and the rest. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was a bad idea to <laughs> keep it uh, more concise. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just for, out of curiosity, it'd be fascinating to see. Uh, how this uh, great director uh, first visualized it, but no, it's not at the very top of my list. But it's but it would be way up there. We have all the Rathbones. Uh, we have uh, oh, there's a missing Wantner. I would love to see what oh. is it called, the Sleeping Cardinal, something like that. Yeah, uh, that would be very interesting to take a look at. Uh, I would love to see uh, the 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 first of that what uh, Scott was referring to the return of Sherlock Holmes that film survives it's at the Library of Congress it's just that because of legal complications with Paramount and its successors I think Sony owns it now um, they can't uh, distribute it outside the Library of Congress so I really care I'd go to the Library of Congress wear my mask and uh, see it there but. Um, Again, there is no indication that that is an important film, but it would be just interesting to see where Clive Brooks is getting his chops yeah. and how that production works. Now, flip flip this question on its head, Russell. Has there been any material that you have seen restored or that has been found that has profoundly disappointed you? Mm. Yes. Um, let's start with the John Barrymore. Um, that... Uh, that for a long time was a lost film. And it, and then it became one of those films where you just found crappy little this is and that's. And so, um, and by the way, the, or- the Norwood film is intensely caught up in that. Um, but then we discovered a nice, pristine print. And that's what circulates today. Nothing wrong with that print. Everything wrong with that film. And so, uh, except for uh, Seffertitz as Moriarty is wonderful. And, uh, but the, uh, yeah, so that was disappointing. Kevin Brownlow and I, Kevin Brownlow is one of the great British uh, film historians of uh, silent film. And uh, we and I had a great time uh, comparing those on what films have you restored that you wish unrestored? And, uh, we put the Barrymore way up there. And so, uh, but um, uh, it's a snooze. And what the and as I say, it affects 
the uh, availability of the Norwoods because Goldwyn, as was his wont, sued, stole, uh, claiming uh, a kind of frivolous, make, making a frivolous case that uh, the Norwood series was interfering with the uh, commercial, the commerciality of the uh, of the Barrymore film, and uh, this was part of a larger rivalry between Conan Doyle and Gillette by the mid-20s. And uh, the judge threw the case out of court. But in the meantime, Stoll said, you know, who needs the aggravation? And so stopped uh, uh, sending the Norwoods to the United States. He had such a great success with the international market, you know, who needed the U.S., for short films. So this is a time when feature films were dominating. Um, so, um, so we lost those films to this, uh, pretty boy film (laughs) 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 with with, with, with the ever popular Carol Dempster. (laughs) (laughs) The the woman who replaced Lillian Gish as, uh, uh, DW Griffith's sweetheart. Yeah. Well, Russell, this has been fascinating. I mean, there is so much to explore in the world of silent film and Sherlock Holmes. We're delighted that you were here to talk with us about uh, Eileen Norwood and, uh, and and certainly Clive Brook as well. Um, can, can we look forward to uh, more films being discovered or, or other uh, tranches of uh, archives uh, popping you know, up for restoration? You, you can. Um, that is... One of the wonderful part of being a film detective, which is that I remember in the 70s, there was a campaign called Nitrate Can't Wait, that if we haven't discovered it by the end of the 70s, it's lost because nitrate is a highly volatile material and the material that film, silent film was shot on. Um, and uh, it turns out, no, um, nitrate can wait. And it all depends on how it was stored, where it was. And so the thing is, it's not just archives that have these films. It are, is private collectors. Uh, one was, one bunch of films was found under the ice in Dawson City, Alaska. And, uh, you never know where these things are going to show up. And so, uh, no, that, is worth sticking around for just to see what might pop up. Uh, and uh, in fact, it's more likely that we're going to find things from the silent and early sound era than it will 50 years ago that we're going to find things from our era because the materials on which film was shot were so much more stable. Um, you know, try and preserve a DVD uh, 50 years from now. And uh, so that's one of the great ironies that these, uh, and it's one of the things that archives worry about. But anyway, the good news is that uh, there's a lot more out there and uh, we just have to know where to find it. Well, we are glad you are here with us and hopefully you'll be around to pop back up here and uh, talk with us about it. My great pleasure. All right. Thank you, Russ. Thank you. You know, we live in an age when people seem to have rediscovered storytelling in all of its variations. And how wonderful to be able to talk to Russ in 2021 about silent films and to see the restoration work and to be part of the rediscovery of this. You know, it's I talk to people all the time and I ask them, you know, about different silent films and so many people that I meet never seen a silent movie, never looked at Charlie Chaplin, never seen any of the restorations. It's, uh, it's just, it's just a, it's a wonder. I mean, it's, it's a whole other, as, as he said, you know, it's a whole other way of communicating, but it is so fundamental to be able to visually communicate effectively. It is. And when you think about the evolution of, uh, of, of stagecraft, uh, you know, actors in theaters, uh, you know, in, in, 
well, the centuries before leading up to film, um, they had to be very expressive in their nature so they could get to the back of the house. They had to project. They had to use these these broad gestures, right? So when you see those first silent films, um, it's that same technique that's being used, and it doesn't need to be uh, that comical or that grand uh, for film. And, of course, as film... Uh, of course, uh, and direction evolved. Close-ups could tell a lot more. The the flick of an eyebrow uh, could do a lot more than this broad gesture. And and of course, then uh, when the talkies came along, uh, it was it was even more uh, pronounced. And and you think about where we are right now, and how every day on their phones, people are thumbing through, they're scrolling through, and watching short clips of video without sound, right? right before the sound turns on. We are actually more acclimated to silent film now than I think we have been in a uh, 100 years. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating that this is coming back once again into the public interest. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. I'm going to line up and see if I could buy next generation of only black and white iPhone. <laughs> and and with a permanent mute button try that it'll be <laughs> perfect right. for listening to all these episodes if i hear of sherlock everywhere no volume control what a what a blessing sherlock holmes and arthur conan doyle have been topics of conversation in the world of literature ever since 1895 wouldn't it be great to look through all those discussions, have all those articles, reviews, and commentary in one place on your bookshelf. Now you can, because the Wessex Press has published Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman. All the pastiches, parodies, letters, all the columns and commentaries about Sherlock Holmes from 1895 to 1933 from the finest literary magazine of the 20th century, The Bookman, in one place, bringing back dozens of long-lost commentaries about the chronicles of Sherlock Holmes. Don't wait until this handsome volume is out of print. Get your copy of Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman right now at wessexpress.com. Uh, that can mean only one thing, Bert. It's time to get on the elevator. <laughs> In this case, it's the elevator straight to everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show, Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry and you are expected to give us the Sherlock Holmes story to which it refers. Now, if you'll recall, the last time around, we gave you this clue. The dead man lay upon his back, a scene of blood and gore. The old wheel turns, the spoke appears, it's all been done before. Bert, do you know which story we are referring to? Yes, yes, that, well, that old wheel, that's the giveaway. It's the case that stems from Watson's exclamation when he dressed the wound of a, an hydraulics expert who built a wine press with no room for the grapes. That's the case they called the engineer's dumb. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, that went in an unexpected direction, I must say. Uh, no, that is, in fact, not what we were looking for. We were looking for, well, something interesting here uh, happened. We were looking for the Valley of Fear. And before I get to that something interesting, I have to bring up Eric Decker's response. Not, not that Eric's response isn't interesting, but he said, uh, in this case, Dr. Watson discovers the joys of micro-brewed ales and lagers and is soon shocked to find that his pants no longer fit properly. It's the belly of beer. Oh, dear. Yeah. Wait, that doesn't sound right. It's actually the Valley of Fear. Yes, that's right, Eric. Um, well, an interesting thing happened this time around. 
um, that quote about the old wheel turning, it's all been done before, there's nothing new under the sun, that, that kind of thing. There are two similar quotes in the canon that, uh, that, that get to what that couplet was referring to. One is in the Valley of Fear, the other is in A Study in Scarlet. Wouldn't you know? Um, and there was someone lying on his back, although I will say there was not as much gore in that than there was in um, the Valley of Fear. So it was interesting. We, we had, it was about 50-50 with our responses. So we are going to have to choose from the 50% that guessed correctly, and that means we're going to have to spin the big prize wheel here. And watch as it slows down and comes to land on number number nine. Lovely number nine. And that gives us, let's see, oh, an old winner, Olivia Kirkendall. <laughs> Olivia Kirkendall. Well, thank you, Olivia. You are correct. And we will be getting a prize from our iHose vaults out to you uh, very soon. Now, this time around, we have another prize from our iHose vaults, so stay with us and guess the clue that we are looking for here. The new cook reads a magazine. The breakfast eggs are hard. A string, a stone, will soon explain the stonework's missing shard. If you know the answer to this week's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among the correct answers and we choose you at random, you'll win a prize. And there's no telling, Bert, what it will be from our iHose vaults. We have books. We have ephemera. We have tchotchkes. We have knickknacks. We even have socks. Can you believe that? <laughs> yes, sure. I can. I can believe that. I'll have, I'll have the uh, the crown of the royal stewards for a hundred, Alex. <laughs> well, these are Sherlockian socks, Bert, or I guess as they would more appropriately be referred to around these parts as I hosiery. Oh, I like it. How come we don't have a line of I hosiery? We should probably brand that and put something up on Shopify. We could. We could have, you know, a different pair for each episode. Mm. Now we, could you... have, we could have film reels and things for this episode, you know. It would be good. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that, that's really heavy work you're talking about. But No, um... no, it's nylon or cotton. No, it's just rubberized. <laughs> well, it made in China. It's not heavy at all. Oh. You don't want your toes to sweat while you're enjoying your iHose socks. We want all the wicking nature that socks provide. Well, um, I hear of Sherlock everywhere supports you from the top of your head, <laughs> friends to the tip of your toes. So now Are we're gonna, worried about falling arches. Worry no more with iHosiery. We're going to have to have a line of orthotics. No, no, we need an app. You can control your iHosiery <laughs> with the app. Download it now. Well, before we get too far afield here, uh, folks, uh, we will have something for you in the way of a prize. But we also do, just a reminder, have a uh, a bit of bonus content for our Patreon supporters. We have some behind-the-scenes looks at uh, the silent film festival at Chautauqua from 2015, as well as some footage of the uh, Eileen Norwood uh, films from when we were in the audience, and that includes the uh, the player piano, the, uh, uh, the, the the wonderful job there that Phil Carley did. Not player piano, but a, a piano player, I should say. Uh, who was well, a silent film accompanist par excellence? Yes, yeah. Well, it wasn't yes. a silent piano. Well, I didn't hear it during a lot of the dialogue, but then there wasn't any dialogue. So. Well, it was it was piano forte. No, no, that can't be right. Look, there are many listeners to our show who, before they go out to formal events, do the same thing. I know about this. I talk to people all the time, very well informed. They take out Sharpies and they color their ankles because they can't afford socks. <laughs> and so your decision to begin to produce iHosiery will be a great boon to people in the Sherlockian community. And I haven't even gotten to the player piano. <laughs> Well, I will eat my shoe if that uh, <laughs> if that happens. 
<laughs> well, in the meantime, this is the well-heeled Scott Monty. And this is the guy working the pedals. I'm Burt Wolder. And together, <laughs> we say... <laughs> the, the game's afoot! The game. <laughs> What's more logical? <laughs> <laughs> the, the game's afoot! <laughs> the game's afoot! I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow. Very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs>